Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston. I'm a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Dr. Gary Allen Fine with me, who is a James E. Johnson Professor of Sociology at Northwestern. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, Gary. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Today we are going to be talking about fair share, senior activism, tiny publics, and the culture of resistance, a University of Chicago Press publication that just came out this year, 2023. So Gary, what led you to writing this book and, and doing this research? Absolutely. Um, What I want to do first is explain the approach that I have to sociology, then the methods, and then specifically how I came to this particular topic when I came to this particular topic. So the kind of research that I have devoted my career to, and it's now a career of uh, 50 years in since I entered graduate school, is a focus on small groups and the small group cultures. They're what I call tiny publics. And the way that I'm looking at sociology is that society is made up not of large institutions. Of course, there are large institutions, not of isolated individuals. Of course, there are individuals, but the way that action takes place. And sociology is a discipline of action. That's our core mission to understand how people act together, together, is through these group cultures, idiocultures, I've called them. And so all of my research has been to understand the nature of small group cultures, tiny publics, uh, those elements that are between the individual and the institution. Um, And I think that sociologists sometimes forget that very distinct level of analysis. And that has been what I have attempted to do over the course of half a century. Uh, And I think it's important. And the way I have approached that, now getting into methods, is through understanding, uh, through observation, through ethnographic research, coupled with in-depth interviews. And so I have conducted over the course of my years, 14 different ethnographic studies of different kinds of communities, mostly leisure communities or work 
communities. And they've ranged from Little League Baseball to Dungeons and Dragons, restaurant kitchens, government meteorologists, and a range of others, as I say, 14 different studies. Uh, Now, how did I come to write Fair Share, uh, Senior Activists, Tiny Publics, and the Culture of Resistance? I'm always interested in group cultures, as I mentioned. Now, uh, I had done a study uh, maybe five, six years ago of art students and looking at how art students create a culture of aesthetics. Well, after I was done with that research, I asked myself, what is the next area that I should study? And as it happens, my age at that point was 65. I had just gotten my uh, Medicare card. I'd just been in, you know, gotten Social Security. And I said, well, I've never, you know, I've written about uh, social movements and movement organizations, but I've never actually studied them. I've never studied a, a social movement organization. And now that I'm a senior citizen, why don't I look at those organizations in which seniors fight for their rights? Now, I would like to believe as a sociologist that I could study either a conservative group or a progressive group, an alt-right group, an Antifa group. The group that I am looking at uh, is a uh, progressive organization. Uh, Chicago Seniors Together is the name that I use for them in this book, but that's, of course, a pseudonym, uh, you know, as we ethnographers typically uh, come up with. Uh, And so I contacted the group and the uh, director of the group, the the woman who was in charge, the, uh, you know, agreed to permit me to observe that group. And I started in uh, actual 2015 and ended my research in 2018. So it was a period of about two and a three, uh, two and a half years, three years in which I was going to meetings uh, often several times a week. I mean, it was quite an intense project. I uh, went to demonstrations and uh, uh, collective action movements, uh, activities. Uh, The one thing I didn't do, which some of my friends and colleagues did, was civil disobedience. Uh, I... uh, Personally, I drew a line there, but I watched others uh, chain themselves to doors and and uh, force the police to drag them and and carry their wheelchairs in some cases, uh, you know. But I was there for a whole variety of events for nearly three years, um, and that was the project. And the reason for doing this was to understand how senior citizens fit into politics, fit into collective action. And that's the basis of uh, Fair Share. And the reason I call the book Fair Share is because one of the constant memes, the themes that these elderly men and women used was, we demand our fair share. And And further, that the rich, and they never defined themselves as the rich, that the rich were not 
paying their fair share. So this idea of fairness was important in terms of this ethnography. Now, what fairness consists of is part of what I discuss. You know, who is to say, you know, what fairness is, is is fairness that everyone pays the same percentage of their income, or is it that everyone gets the same benefits from the state? What constitutes fairness? That's one of the sociological problems uh, that that I address here. It's not one that I answer because there is no answer that, you know, what fairness is, is what groups consider to be just. And there was a, there was a large uh, variety of different topics that uh, came up with fair sh- in terms of what is fair and, and what share they're looking for. Right. In the, in terms of the collective movements that uh, the senior population participated in. Well, that, that's right. As I say, this is a, a progressive group. It is a group that is inspired by Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals, Reveille for Radicals. Um, you know, that he was a, a prominent Chicago-based activist and had a model of how people should join together to create fairness. Uh, you know, what that meant in terms of this group was to fight for better nursing home conditions, to fight for better senior housing conditions, uh, and eventually in time to fight for uh, a a more equitable uh, kind of uh, Medicare, a Medicare for all. Uh, They haven't succeeded in, in getting Medicare for all, but that certainly was was one of their goals in that period that I was present. And topics that are relevant to them and, and important to them. Yes, that's right. Excellent. So one of the um, questions that I had to, to begin with is, why senior population? What is their significance in the United States of America? Why choose uh, the senior population rather than some other population, as you have done in your past books? Sure. Well, you know, as I said uh to be a little bit casual about it, that, you know, they, they were my people. You know, I, I was, you know, sometimes young people study seniors um, and they, that's important. They, you know, have a distinctive perspective, but, you know, here I was meeting them on their own terms in terms of their age. Now, uh, one of the themes in the book is about memory and history and about the culture in which you grew up. Um, and so, you know, I talk a good deal about the experiences of these men and women, you know, how they were, the the older ones, you know, involved in fighting Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism, uh, somewhat younger, you know, being part of protests against the Vietnam War, uh, involved in the feminist revolution, uh, women's rights. Uh, and so, you know, the period from the 50s, 60s, 70s is part of the basis on which these men and women understood politics today. And it had its benefits and it had its drawbacks. So I talk in the book about issues of race and issues of gender equity. Uh, this is a group that got along very well 
in general. They, you know, were all were progressives. They saw more or less eye to eye. They didn't entirely see it eye to eye in terms of race or in terms of gender expression. One of the examples I use in the book is about pronouns. Uh, the organization hires uh, uh, workers, uh, younger people, to to help out to be, uh, uh, you know, help out seniors as, as activists. And one of these young people uh, chose to be referred to as they. You know, this is not so common for not so uncommon for those of us who are university professors in this day and age. Of course, I was doing this you know, five years ago, but still, even then, it was it was not so terribly rare. Uh, and to be fair about it, the seniors wouldn't have minded that this uh, person that they were working with. Uh, wished to describe themselves as they that was okay because they're they're progressives and they're you know whatever people want to do is is okay more or less uh what was difficult was that the organization the executive director and other members of the staff at meetings insisted that we go around the table and announce our preferred pronouns well once this may have been fun and a curiosity, you know, I'm a he and, you know, the woman next to me is a she and, and we did that. Uh, and it was, you know, for many of the people there, it was a little strange. You know, you roll your eyes a little bit about what the younger generation is coming to. But, of course... Our parents did the same thing as we were wearing uh, blue jeans and having our hair long. And, you know, what's this generation coming to? Uh, That's, you know, we understand that. Uh, But when the organization did continue to do this, that every meeting you had to announce your pronoun, some of these seniors thought that that was just dumb. Fine for this a friend of ours, this uh, staff member, to be they. We didn't mind that. Uh, you know, I, I'm speaking for the group, not for me personally. I didn't mind it either. Uh, but for what seems so obvious to us sitting around the table that we were he and she and not they uh, proved to be a source of contention. Now, I mentioned gender expression, race, uh, more sensitive, more serious in some ways. The, a number of the people, the, the seniors there, grew up at a moment, and they considered themselves to be racially progressive, in which being progressive meant being racially blind. Uh, I had some friends in the organization who felt very strongly that they did not see color. I don't mean they didn't see it visually, but that color was irrelevant to them. Now that, you know, and they refer to Martin Luther King, I don't, you know, 
judging people's character, not the color of their skin. And it goes back to the early 1960s and that moment in, in you know, the civil, right, civil rights movement. Uh, today, we see things differently. We don't erase race. That, you know, the racial issues, I mean, this is before George Floyd, but it's after, you know, a number of other racial controversies, uh, racial killings, Dylan Roof and, and uh, Michael Brown in, in, uh, uh, in St. Louis and so forth, that race mattered to others. And so there was this debate that was, you know, ongoing as to how race should be treated, whether the African-American members of the organization were treated equitably whether they were patronized, whether they were given more authority than they deserved. It was, you know, a theme that didn't emerge uh, vehemently on a lot of occasions, but was under the surface. And it had to do, the reason I mention this is both of these things have to do with history. Both of these things have to do with what the world was like when these men and women became adults 50, 60, even 70 years before. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's an important element, I think. Uh, uh, history and the importance of emotions in activism, history matters because it's what provokes emotions into, into activism. Is that, is that correct, Gary? Uh, that, well, yes, and, and emotions were very important for the group. And, and, you know, the staff was constantly exhorting seniors to express how they felt, to share their stories, and not to be kind of the stereotypic seniors who will take everything. You know, they, they were trying to get these seniors to be more activist, more aggressive in in that sense that social movement people want their their members to be, you know, that, that this really matters, that it's a matter of life and death. That may be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's, it's a matter that really means something. And I think and, you, yeah, I think you wrote that stories and narration actually matter more than the, the facts or figures. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's the argument, and that's a Alinsky kind of argument that – who you are and the story you can tell uh, will shape people, will change people. That if you can talk to a politician, not to give them facts, but to give them how this policy denied them access to their medicines or how they had to choose which medicines to take, that that can be moving in a way that saying 60% did this and 10% did that and, and so forth, that, that stories are powerful. It brings, a, it brings things to life and it gives people a sense as to what the experience was for those individuals collectively, which is what you're trying, which is what you draw out from ethnography anyway. So uh, it's less about the facts, but what you observe while you're on site. So what what actually held these social movements together? Uh, you talk about staffers and 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 
you know, what is their role in terms of how, holding the social movement together? Yeah, well, this, this being an organization of seniors, the staff was very important. Uh, they were important in a very positive way and in a way that sometimes caused friction. Uh, the staff were primarily young women. Uh, there was one younger man who was a member of the staff, but and, and the executive director was a woman who was turning 60. Uh, but the other staff members were basically women in their 20s, 20s, 30s, maybe. Uh, and uh, the challenge was that these staffers had movement expertise, that they were part of a network of activists. And the people that they were working with, the seniors, were largely not part of that network. You know, they just wanted to do things that were good for society, that made the world better, that protected seniors and so forth. But they didn't exactly know how to do it in the way that activist organizations know how to do it. You know, for many, I mean, the challenge was that these seniors were perfectly happy to sit around and talk and complain and tell stories. And then the staff had to get them out into the streets and with signs and with uh, slogans and, and so forth and, and make a difference. And sometimes get in the face of politicians or get in the face of the police and, you know, make a point with their bodies. And this, of course, will then take us to the particular role that seniors have, that there are some groups in our society that provoke uh, feelings of recognition of injustice when these groups are treated poorly. And these can be ministers, they can be children, and they can be seniors. So a senior is, as one person told me, visual catnip for the media. So if a senior is being arrested, is being, you know, that uh, that her wheelchair is being moved by the police, is being carried by the police, or she's being dragged, that's that's a story. You know, that's the Chicago newspapers will cover that. They won't really cover it if that person is 35 years old. I mean, that's just, or 20, you know, 20 years old. That's kids being kids. Uh, you know, a five-year-old, that's a story. An 85-year-old, that's a story as well. And so it is that the power of their bodies and the power of their stories that matter. Was a challenge uh, getting the collective consciousness, getting a collective consciousness from the seniors who were part of this political group? Was that a, a difficulty for staffers to do? Or yeah, it was. It was harder for staffers than it was for me. That you know, immediately, I mean, very quickly, I became part of the senior community, even though I was a sociologist. Even though I was studying them, I was still them. I was one of them. And they accepted me almost without exception. The staff, on the other hand, saw me less as a senior and more as 
an observer, you know, more as someone who might tell a negative story about the organization, you know, someone who might be uncovering them. Uh, I wasn't, although there are parts of the book that I'm sure they're not fully comfortable with, but it was, it's certainly not a, an, uh, an expose of the organization, but the staff worried about that because they couldn't control my narrative in the way that they could control the narratives, the behaviors of the senior members. So that was a bit of a challenge. It was, you know, at first it was difficult for me to get access to the staff meetings. You know, that was only possible towards the end of my research because at the staff meetings, the staff would be talking about particular seniors and they would be talking about particular frustrations and failures and so forth. And that, you know, if I learned too much, that could lead to a negative story about the organization, which they did not want. But over time, you know, one of the things about ethnography is you stay with a group long enough and you become part of them. You become part of the furniture easy with the seniors, took a little longer with the staff. To, to all get on the same page and to have a, have a uh, I don't know, to be able to blend in. Well, right. To, the issue is trust. Seniors trusted me because I was one of them. And, you know, they would take me to lunch and we'll go to lunch together and, and they'd you know, ask after my family and my wife and my kids and, you know, medical issues and all, all the rest. Uh, you know, for the staff, it was a little bit different because in a way I was one of them because they were, many of them had master's degrees or graduate degrees or, you know, went through college recently uh, or were sociologists or social workers. So they knew what I was doing from that other side. Yes. We're and, and, on a different page, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And that, that was a challenge for them. Uh, hopefully they will, uh, you know, not be not be too upset. I know that uh, I've heard from some of the seniors that, you know, they like the book. Uh, you know, they, I haven't heard from the staff quite yet. But So now we go into this conversation about idiocultures and tiny publics. Much of your past work has really engaged those two concepts. Does this research involve the study of idiocultures and tiny publics as well? I I think you focus on the MESO level throughout much of your work, but this is at the nursing, uh, well, at the senior level and within a a specific group. Oh, sure. No, all my 14 ethnographies have been about group cultures, idiocultures, interaction orders, uh, tiny publics. You know, this is particularly a, a tiny public because they're engaged in civic activity. And so that the public side of what they're doing is really very clear. Um, and, you know, as, I've, as I mentioned at the outset, this is what I see my contribution to the social sciences as being, that this focus, you know, we, at one point in the history of the social sciences, we were very much attuned to groups, to small groups. Uh, And the American Sociological Review, 1954, had a special issue 
on small groups. By the 1970s, that became less common, that either we were looking at cognitive issues or we were looking at institution structural issues. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to bring back this focus on interaction and on the way that groups such as Chicago Seniors Together produced a meaningful culture for, for themselves. And I talk, I begin the book by talking about an experience that the group had, that I had with them, in which we traveled for a demonstration to uh, Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, the Speaker of the House, back when I was doing this research, the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives, and the Speaker of the House was Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan's district included Racine, Wisconsin, and he had an office in Racine. And the uh, leaders and the staff felt that it would be a good idea to go to Racine to uh, rent some buses, take a bunch of seniors up to Racine, and have a demonstration outside Paul Ryan's office. And uh, they did that. It so happened that this was in March, and people in Chicago and as well as Wisconsin know that March can be meteorologically tricky. So uh, the day that we were supposed to go, there was a forecast of snow. And there was a debate. Should we go? The organization decided that we would go to Racine anyhow. It turned out to be a very snowy day. Racine gets lake effect snow. I think they got 16 inches of snow that day. Uh, Chicago got less, but but still a, a significant amount. And we, as seniors, trudged through the snow in the empty streets of Racine, uh, demonstrating for... Uh, uh, you know, to ensure that Social Security and Medicare was preserved. It was catnip, as yes. you mentioned earlier, right? That's right. And, and it did get some media attention in Chicago and in Wisconsin. So it was, you know, it, but in terms of group culture, it was an event that kept on being referred to. You know, remember that day that we went in the blizzard to Racine. And that was part of the narrative of the group. And it showed how committed the members were to social justice. And that was the glue that held them together as a tiny public. I think that's something that um, runs seamlessly from study to study, from book to book that you have written, the, the 14 ethnographies. Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I will... Tell your audience that the next ethnography, probably, probably the last ethnography, but I've said that before, but I'm 72 years old now. The current ethnography is a study of Civil War history enthusiasts. And so I'm hanging out on with 
on tours, on battlefields, in lectures, uh, Civil War, Congress, uh, a variety of activities, and looking at that group culture. And and uh, and because maybe to close this this meso level, uh, what do you see the significance of the group in terms of uh, macro and and more individual? Uh, more individual studies, cognitive, I guess, maybe was, was something that you mentioned earlier, and that might be more individualistic. And then you have macro, which would be institutions as large as maybe even society, right? So what is this? What is the significance of this meso that you've been focusing on for so long? Thank you. Uh, in 2021, I published a book called The Hinge. And The Hinge is about the semi-autonomous relationship between individuals and institutions. And that hinge, that relationship, operates through interaction, through the groups that members are a part of, the small, the tiny communities, tiny publics that they are involved with. And that it is the group that connects the institutional order you know, institutions don't operate by themselves. They operate because there are groups. There are police units. There are bureaucratic offices and the like. Um, and they don't just operate because of individuals, but individuals can't do anything without others, without collective others, uh, that, that, that they're a network of people that they're linked with. And so in the hinge, I am talking specifically about the role of group cultures in creating civic structures. So it is my answer to those scholars who look at civil society or the public sphere. You know, it's my approach to, uh, you know, address some of the issues that uh, Jeffrey Alexander has talked about or Jurgen Habermas has talked about. There, there are a lot of theorists who, who do that, do, do that very well and very, in a very sophisticated way, but too often they leave out that interaction order. And as a student of Irving Goffman, uh, you know, who was my mentor in college, you know, I feel that that issue of impression management, presentation of self, uh, uh, interaction orders is crucial for what the nature of society is. That's what sociologists, in my view, should be studying. And what a great place to do it in Chicago, right? The place where being in the trenches began. Uh, well, that that's right. But uh, uh, you know, I, I like to think that one could do it in Shanghai or in Berlin as well. Well, thank you again, Gary, for joining me today on New Books in Sociology. I look forward to having you on New Books in Sociology with your next and potentially last ethnography uh, to, you know, to talk about what you found there. All right. It's entitled The Found Cause as opposed to The Lost Cause. Uh, and when you will see it will probably be several years from now. But, uh, but Fair Share is available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Nobles and, and other places as well. Michael, thank you. 
Again, this is uh, another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.